0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Richard Curling, Manager of Jupiter Fund of Investment Trusts, Sam Vecht, Manager of BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, and from the home team, personal finance writer Kate Bailey. This week's Investors Chronicle is a special issue focused on investment trusts. So, in our portfolio clinic, we have featured a portfolio largely composed of investment trusts—twenty-six trusts, in fact—as well as some other holdings. Some of our expert commentators were of view that this was too many. So, Richard, you run a fund of investment trusts. Um, if you're investing in funds rather than individual shares. How many holdings should you look to have in a portfolio?
1: Well, I think to get a um, reasonably diversified portfolio um, across uh, all markets, you need only about 15, maybe 15 to 20 uh, investment trusts. But I think that misses a big opportunity in the whole investment trust area in that there are so many really interesting new ideas coming along in the whole investment trust space. Uh, that I think it would be quite interesting to have some exposure to those. So uh, more uh, holdings might be an um, interesting way to playing this.
0: OK, now I was looking at the fat sheet uh, for uh, Jupiter Investment Trust and it says you've got 58 holdings as at the end of last month. Are these all investment trusts? Uh,
1: yes, they are all investment trusts and they they come about for uh, a variety of reasons. Uh Firstly, uh, there are some areas where maybe we've added to a weighting. So in Japan, for example, our core holding is with Bailey Gifford. uh, But at a time when we wanted to increase our exposure to Japan, we felt there was better value in the J.P. Morgan Japan Trust, which was trading on a 10% discount, rather than the Bailey Gifford one, which was trading on a premium. So we decided to add uh, the J.P. Morgan Trust, another name, but it seemed better value to us at the time. I think the other area thing is that uh, a small exposure to some of these new areas or specialist areas, whether they're things like biotech or maybe P2P lending or maybe single country uh, trusts like uh, New India, for example, which we own, uh, is another reason why uh, we have more holdings than perhaps uh, might some people might think was um, the right number.
0: Now, when you're putting together a portfolio of investment trusts, what different things do you need to consider compared to when you're putting together a portfolio of direct equities?
1: Well, I think in the investment trust, the view that I take is that firstly, we want to try and get the asset allocation right. How much? It's the macro call. How much do we have in Japan or America or Europe, or whatever? The second thing is to try and pick the best manager in each area. And the third thing is to try and add value by buying uh, through the discount, through buying cheaply, good managers cheaply. Um, so those are the kind of three three uh, things that I think are quite important.
0: Okay, I mean, I'll, I'll jump to one of my later questions. Then, what do you give more consideration to—the individual attributes of an investment trust, or the geographic and sector allocation of the portfolio?
1: Well, ultimately, it's the individual investment trust that is uh, most important because that's the investment that we're actually holding. And we're looking at, if we want to have exposure to Japan, we're looking at the best way of getting that, both in terms of value, i.e. the discount, and also in terms of trying to pick the best manager in that region. And I think another thing is is trying to understand the style of that manager and whether we're going to have small cap or large cap or whether we're going to have value or whether we're going to have growth as a way of getting exposure to those uh, regions.
0: Okay, so those are some of the attributes you um, would start looking for. Are there any other kind of like main points that um, you kind of focus on when you're looking for an investment trust?
1: I I think costs are quite important. I mean, they need to be competitive and costs are an important factor because everything we pay in a fund in terms of charges comes off um, the investment return uh, but it's very important to think of that in terms of value for money. What are we getting for those charges? And sometimes we can justify paying quite high fees if we're getting something very special as a result.
0: Is there a kind of like upper limit to the amount of fees you would pay on a, an investment trust?
1: I don't think so. I think it is uh, It is a matter of value for money and it's also a matter of comparing the alternative investments which may be uh, at uh, lower fees Um, but ultimately it is trying to pick the best fund manager in this particular area that we're trying to get exposure to and that is based on their track record and demonstrating that they have a repeatable process and that good performance isn't just a flash in the pan and that they really know what they're doing.
0: Okay um, what would you say the main advantages of investing in investment trusts rather than direct equities
1: I think there are a number of advantages to investment trusts. Uh, firstly, there's the gearing. Uh, investment trusts can have gearing, and that, of course, works both ways because you know when market's going up, it's great, and you enhance your return, but when they're going down, you know, it can have a negative effect. Um, I, I think one of the other things is it's a fixed pool of capital, and that means the liquidity issues are not so important, and that means that a trust can get exposure to some illiquid areas, of the market that you can't trade very easily and you can't buy as an individual very easily and we're seeing more and more of that in the investment trust area and that's a really interesting area and whether it's exposure to infrastructure or new areas like p2p lending you can get that through investment trust but you can't get that as an individual investor or through open-ended vehicles
0: Yeah. Will you say there's any disadvantages to running a portfolio of investment trusts as opposed to running um, a portfolio of direct equities? Uh,
1: I I think that obviously there's a a slight cost difference, um, but I think that we can more than justify the cost difference by uh, buying well in terms of discount or managing that discount um, arbitrage opportunity well and picking the best manager. But I think that the main disadvantage probably is liquidity in being able to sell, buy and sell those trusts when you want to.
0: Okay. Now, we've focused on the reasons for putting a trust into the portfolio, but what are your reasons for selling out of an investment trust?
1: Um, The reasons for selling an investment trust would be to reduce exposure to a particular uh, geography or sector, uh, that either was fully valued or we no longer had the same degree of confidence that we were going to make money out of. Uh, when the manager changes or leaves, uh, that can be uh, quite a significant catalyst for change. Uh, and also in terms of valuation, sometimes uh, areas of the market uh, become very expensive. They start trading on big premiums that are very difficult to justify. Um And those are hot areas of the market, bubble-like areas of the market sometimes. Uh, And so that would be another reason for selling when the premium on investment trust goes to a level which we think is not sustainable.
0: OK. Thank you, Richard. You can also see Richard's investment trust suggestions for growth, income, wealth preservation and diversification in this week's magazine. Kate has also been looking at constructing portfolios of investment trusts, but specifically for income. Kate, first of all, why are investment trusts particularly good for investing in income?
2: Um, well investment trusts they have a key benefit over open ended funds and their ability to hold back some revenue to pay dividends in the future. Um so they can behave a bit more like a you know, an ordinary company or stock and kind of shelter shareholders from from future volatility in, in some ways like that. Okay,
0: now you asked two investment advisors to put together portfolios of trusts to generate an income. Can you, um, you highlight some of the, the suggestions they made?
2: Yeah, um, in fact they both like um, Edinburgh Investment Trust um, and that and that is a trust that's well known for having withheld some revenue in the past to pay out very steady dividends um, and has paid consistent dividends for um, a number of years. Uh, so both like that one, um, and then London and St Lawrence Investment Company was another, um, and then others including things like Murray International Trust, which has been having a bit of a hard time mm. in terms of <laughs> returns, yeah, um, in the past year. But um, David Liddle, who uh, head at Ipso Factor Investor, he. Has faith in that trust and um, and in the manager's ability to ride out this volatility and bring things back in the future. So those are a few. But in fact, it was interesting that they both had very different views on um, on what they would like to put in their ten holding portfolio. Um, and so it will be it will be interesting to see how they kind of perform uh, against each other for the next year or two years.
0: Okay, thank you, Kate. And you can see the rest of the income portfolio suggestions in this week's Investment Trust special issue of Investors Chronicle. Now, as well as being good for income. Investment trusts are also good for investing in assets that are not easy to buy and sell, or which you should hold for the long term because they don't have to meet investor redemptions. Assets which fall into this category include frontier market equities. Markets are even less developed than emerging markets. Our other special guest today is Sam Vecht, who runs BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, which we count among our IC Top 100 funds. Kate, earlier this year, uh, looked at uh, whether frontier markets are worth the risk. So, Kate, I believe you have some questions for Sam.
2: Sam, we talk about um, frontier markets as being kind of early emerging markets, but is that the wrong way to look at them? What is the difference between frontier and emerging markets, would you say?
3: So there's no great uh, difference between them. The way we think uh, about the difference is really in terms of the type of investor investing in those countries. So, what we do is we say there are about 190 members of the United Nations. 20 or so are classed by the index provider MSCI as developed. About another 20 are classed by that index provider as emerging, and that would include countries like China, India, Brazil, Russia. There's about another 20 that are classed uh, by MSCI as frontier countries like Nigeria, Argentina, Pakistan. And then the remaining 120, 130 countries in the world are below that. Our focus is very much on the countries that are either classed by MSCI as frontier or the countries that aren't even frontier. Uh, And the difference between them and emerging markets really is, as I said, in the terms of who's investing in them. Uh, Typically, with frontier markets, the investors are local in nature, and that means when there are global headwinds, tailwinds, they're not really buffeted by those global features. They are locals looking at local developments, uh, and that actually allows us to do uh, in-depth research and have a slight advantage uh, over some of the local, typically retail investors.
2: And so and those local issues will will be what? There'll be kind of geopolitical tensions.
3: Yeah, local local politics, local economics, the sort of the bubble in the local property market, whatever it happens right. to be. And and the really important point here is that when Nigeria goes up, Argentina goes down, when Pakistan goes up, Vietnam goes down, these markets don't move together. Uh, and that's very different from what we even see in the developed world. We all know that if the Dow Jones goes down on a particular day, the likelihood is the FTSE goes down as well. Uh, and so you see pretty high degrees of correlation in the developed world. And even in the emerging world, well, people are worried about China growing or China not growing, whatever it happens to be. When it comes to these frontier markets, these markets are that diversified in ownership, they don't move together. And that means even though each of these countries as a whole, on, on their own, is actually rather risky. Think about investing in a place like Nigeria or Vietnam, Pakistan, these are all individually risky but put them together and they're remarkably considerably less risky than one would imagine so that the volatility on our investment trust, how much it moves on a daily basis is actually considerably less than the FTSE moves on the daily basis uh, over the last five years and there's obviously been all sorts of global dislocations over that period.
2: And and what's the comparison to um, emerging markets say in terms of returns over the long term?
3: So uh, it's kind of interesting. Many people sort of think that frontier markets are just beta, uh, as it were, on emerging markets, and emerging markets themselves are beta on global markets. Uh, but the facts say otherwise. So if we look uh, over the last five years, pretty much since we launched our, our investment trust, uh, our investment trust is up about 20%. Uh, emerging markets are down 20% over that period of time. So it's a very, very different return. Um, Uh, And so uh, I think it's very wrong to assume that these markets move together. Uh, And the one thing which we're fairly sure about saying uh, for the long term is that uh, as long as we have that diversified ownership, frontier markets will continue to be less volatile than emerging markets, considerably less volatile than emerging markets, and possibly even less volatile as a whole. Uh, than developed markets.
2: I think people would find that quite surprising to <laughs> to uh, hear
3: that. It, it it is surprising. It's been the case for the last five years. Um, one can never, you know, one can never be sure about the future. Uh, but it would have surprised many people when we said this and forecast this five years ago, and it turned out to be the case.
2: But and and so you're saying that obviously because of this diversification, and you do get this this big variety of returns within frontier markets. So over the past kind of year, which which are the regions that have been soaring?
3: Yeah, so it's individual areas. Um, so nothing has soared over the last year, not least because uh, <laughs> it's been a difficult, a, a difficult time for many global markets, and also it come off a very strong 2013 and 14. But really big differentials between, let's say, parts of South Asia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. where we've got owned individual stocks that are up thirty, forty, fifty percent in dollar terms. And stocks, stocks like which? Um, they're typically in the consumer space, pharmaceuticals um that's those have been done particularly well even financials in that part of the world have done actually quite well Um, And a utility, remarkably. Mm. Um, uh, And you contrast that with other frontier markets, thankfully, ones that we don't have that much exposure to, such as Nigeria, which have obviously suffered as the oil prices come down, um, and other frontier markets in emerging Europe, where we do have some exposure, things like Kazakhstan, again, somewhat uh, exposed to the oil price, where we've seen stocks fall by 30-40% in dollar terms, so really very big spread of returns. That we see uh, across frontier markets.
2: I mean, over the past year, has has the kind of performance been defined by oil importers versus oil? Exporters, or is it not that? Um, there's, definitely,
3: there's definitely been an element of that, and that's not really surprising because obviously the oil price we're looking at sort of exactly in the last year has halved. Mm. So, that you know, whether oil price moves 10 or 15 percent, that didn't really make a big difference. 50 percent is actually a serious move that changes the, 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 the economics of quite a few countries. So, that has been a much more considerable drive in the last year than it had been in 2011, 12, 13. Um, however, what continues to drive most of the return, not all the return is that what is happening domestically? Is politics improving, typically from a pretty bad uh, place to just an okay place? Um, you know, how is the local economy doing? Uh, what's happening in terms of bank lending? What's happening in the property market? That's typically uh, a bigger focus.
2: Um I mean, but just the last thing on the oil price, but did you have to sell out of any any positions as a result of that? did you feel a direct impact on uh, the performance?
3: Rather fortuitously, we actually uh, took pretty considerable portfolio action uh, in the middle uh, it's sort of q two q three two thousand and fourteen. Uh, and reducing both direct and indirect oil exposure, uh, as I said, somewhat fortuitously before the oil price fell sharply. So we reduced quite a lot of our Middle East exposure um, uh, in places like Qatar and UAE, um, Kuwait, uh, and even uh, in a place like Nigeria, we still have some exposure. We did take that down quite significantly, uh, largely before the oil price collapsed.
2: And where did you put that into
3: So that that money went into a collection of places, um, South Asia principally. So we actually have about 30% in our investment trust now between Pakistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Um, And that's a very different positioning to what we had, let's say, three, four years ago, when perhaps those three countries combined would have been 5%. Um, so that was one of the major destinations. A bit of it went into Vietnam, a bit into Argentina, um, but those, you know, South Asia would have been the princi- the principal beneficiary.
2: And how do you feel about countries like Argentina now, who are obviously coming up to elections, and um, people have been so negative on in the past, but it seems to be a bit of sentiment shift? Yeah,
3: absolutely. I think the elections are very critical for Argentina, um, and hopefully the outlook for Argentina will be more positive. Um, than it has been for a number of years. That said, there's, you know, a lot of hard work to be done in that country. Uh, That country has been, let's say, moving in an inappropriate direction for many years, even many decades, some might claim. Uh, And so uh, a change in leadership uh, is necessary, but not sufficient uh, to make that a really exciting uh, investment opportunity.
2: Okay. And and just finally, with kind of Everything we've talked about and and all of this turbulence and the fact that things seem to change quite quickly for some of these frontier market countries. Do you have a higher portfolio turnover than someone in a developed fund? Might have.
3: Well, it actually it is, it's kind of interesting that there, there have been periods where our portfolio turnover has been remarkably low. If we go back to sort of 2011-12, we bought stuff, held it and they didn't reach our target prices. So we did very little. Uh, over the last year or so, quite a few stocks have hit our target prices. And when things hit our target prices, even if it's three or four years from when we initially put it in the portfolio, we sell. Um, And so that's what actually generates our turnover is whether stocks hit our target prices. Obviously, we also sell when the facts change. Um, But but typically what's driven turnover has been stocks hitting our target prices uh, and the opportunities that we see elsewhere. Um, so uh, it's very difficult to say what our turnover level should be or would be historically it's been 30-40% um, and, and I, I think you know one were to think about most of the holdings uh, in this portfolio uh, having a duration of somewhere between two and four years.
2: And and so price is the key determinant here isn't price it? Price
3: is absolutely everything in emerging and frontier markets and let's and I, I conclude with one point The London Business School have shown, and this is quite controversial to many, but this is, again, what the facts show, you buy emerging in frontier markets when the currency is cheap, the market is cheap, and when GDP growth is disappointing not the reverse. Um, And this really goes to the core of the way we think about things. Price is absolutely critical. It's not how good the story is, how many middle class consumers you see on the front page of whichever publication it is. It's what are you actually paying for? What's priced by the market? Uh, And that's what we think about on a daily basis.
2: Thanks very much.
3: Thank you.
0: Okay. thank you, Sam and Kate. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Richard Curling, manager of Jupiter Fund of Investment Trusts, Sam Vecht, manager of BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, and Kate Bailey. You can find more investment trust suggestions, suggestions on how to invest and information on the sector in this week's Investors Chronicle, which is a special issue focused on investment trusts. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.